the world and, you know, the, the, the security measures that we indulge in in this world. And then the second week, we talked about prostitution, not that kind, but the, the kind of prostitution that involves idolatry and how we submit ourselves and subject ourselves to certain idols, uh, you know, our sports teams, our boats, our golf clubs, that kind of thing. And then the third week, last week, we talked about the game of perseverance, which is the punishment and the persecution that comes when we're disobedient to God. So today we're going to talk about petitioning, which is the game of plea bargaining. Now, I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I got in trouble quite a bit. I'm not embarrassed to say. I don't think I got in trouble near as much as my five brothers. But again, I'm comparing myself to others. But the reality is, is that whenever I would get caught, I learned quickly in life that if I would shared, shed some crocodile tears, that maybe my punishment will be a little bit more lenient. That never worked. But uh, the point is, is that I learned by shedding tears that I might be able to get my way occasionally. Occasionally. When we look at these scriptures, remember last week we were talking about the punishment and the persecution that was going to come at the hands of God. He gave us over to our enemies, his enemies, so that we would be tried and tested and punished and persecuted with the expectation that by enduring that persecution, it would compel us to come back to a loving God. That was the goal. And so he gave us over to the enemy. And that was an ugly punishment, an ugly persecution, an ugly treatment that we had to go through and that we still go through today because of our rebelliousness. We just don't want to do things God's way. But I want you to look at some of these, these verses here in regards to their demeanor, their, their character, their, their disposition in regards to this persecution at the hands of God through the enemies. In Judges 2.15, it says they were in great distress. Great distress. Now, I don't know if you've been in great distress before, but great distress is not something I long for. It's when your back's against the wall, you're out of options, you have no money, you have no one to call, no one to turn to, nowhere to go, and you're absolutely at wit's end. You cannot figure out how to fix your situation. That's distress. But not distress that only lasts for an hour or two, but distress that will last, in this regard, up to 40 years. 40 years of constant, unwavering distress. That's what we can anticipate in relation to our rebelliousness. Because what scriptures make it very clear about is this, that in our humility, if we would come back to the Lord and confess and repent that he will show mercy to us and he will put an end to the distress. But the key word there is humility. And because that is not a, a suitable attribute in our society, we rebel against that and we deny it and we refuse it because in our pride, we want to fix it ourselves. This is why in the cycle of sin, sometimes Israel got to a place of freedom in seven years and why sometimes it took 18 years, and sometimes it took 40 years. It's all contingent upon your level of rebelliousness and, um, and obstinance. 
But these people were in great distress. In verses 16 and 17, it says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges. Underline that. They would not listen to their judges. That is not indicative of humility. When they refuse to listen to the leaders who have been placed over them, that is not humility. In Judges 2.18, it says they groaned under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. Groaning is not a good sign of a happy life. We'll just leave it at there. In Judges 2.19, they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Again, not a, not a path of humility. But this was the people of God that he had personally chosen to be his children. And this was the life that they were living in obstinance to him and his ways. So he turned them over to their enemies, to his enemies, so that they would be oppressed and afflicted in order to get their attention so that in their despair they would return to him and he could love them all over again. Now, the question is this. Did they, when they cried out for help, did they find true salvation Or was it some facsimile of salvation? Was it some cheap version of salvation? And the question we're going to be looking at is, what does it take to get true, genuine forgiveness and restoration at the hands of God? So we're going to look at the cycle of sin occurs six times in the book of Judges. But we're going to talk about five, and then we're going to compare them. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. So if you look at the cycle that begins in, in chapter 3, verse 8, as a result of their sins, it says in verse 9 that when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. In this case, it was Othniel who saved them. The key phrase here is, when they cried out to the Lord. One, one good way to get God's attention in this world is to cry out to him whenever you are in despair. He wants to hear from his children. And when we're in despair, he wants to help us. He wants to deliver us. He wants to save us. He wants to get involved because he wants to show you how loving he is. And he wants to show you how strong and merciful he is and how gracious and generous he is. When you're in despair, he sits and he waits and he waits for you to cry out for help. Now understand, until you cry out, he's probably just going to do nothing. He's wanting to get your attention. And until you cry out for help, he's not going to take it serious. He wants to know where your heart is. Now he knows how stubborn we are. He knows what it's going to take to break us. He's hoping that it doesn't get to that point. He wants us in just the the fleeting moments after our despair. He wants to, to come and to pick us up. But again, that arrogance thing gets in the way. So look at that. He, he, they cried out to him and he raised up a deliverer to save them. Okay. 
So they cried out. He raised up a deliverer. That's the process. In chapter 3, verse 12, it starts the cycle of sin all over again. And this time it says that he sold them and they were oppressed for eight years at the hands of the enemy. And when they cried out to the Lord in verse, uh, I'm sorry, when they cried out to the Lord in verse 15, he gave them a deliverer, Ehud. Again, they cried out to the Lord, he delivered them through Ehud. In chapter 4, verse 2, the third time the cycle of sin perpetuates itself. He sold them into the hands of their enemy. They were cruelly oppressed for 20 solid years. And they cried to the Lord for help. And he delivered them at the hands of Deborah. You see the pattern here. They cried out. He delivered them. The fourth time in chapter 6, verse 1, he gave them into the hands of their enemy and they were severely oppressed for seven years, uh, predominantly with poverty, specifically poverty. And it says that they cried out to the Lord for help and Gideon was raised up to be their deliverer. So we're going to pause here for a minute. Four times this cycle of sin has repeated itself. It starts the same way. During a time of peace, the people get so full of themselves that they don't need God, and so they start worshiping other idols during this time of peace. But when they worship their other idols and they turn their backs on God, it irritates him because he's a jealous God. He wants the love of his people. And so in his anger, he turns you over to that which you are pursuing because he knows that there's no life in that. There's no joy in it, and you will eventually become spiritually bankrupt. But he gives you into the hands of that that you want so that he can get your attention that he is the only loving God who really cares. But the question we have to ask ourselves, because the same thing happens to us, why do we constantly get into the same cycle? How do we break the cycle? How do we finally learn from our mistakes and from from the pain that we've endured? What does it take in order for us to break that cycle? The cycle is same in all four of these examples. But when we get to the next one, you're going to see one major difference. Next page. Page two. In chapter 10, verse 7, the cycle begins again. And this time, God sold them into the hands of their enemy. And it says that they were shattered and crushed. Shattered and crushed at the hands of the enemy for 18 years. Extremely painful. And then it says the Israelites cried out to the Lord. The pattern is still going, right? But there's a little phrase added in. We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Major breakthrough for God, right? The fifth time through the cycle, they're finally starting to learn there's something missing in our act of crying out for help. And then this verse, we find confession. Confession was missing in the first four cycles. This is major. This is huge. Crying out for help all the time doesn't illustrate a change in you. 
In fact, if there isn't a major change in you, chances are 100% you're going to keep repeating your cycle. Now, I was an alcoholic for years, and I kept trying to break the habit. And I would break it, and I would feel good about myself for two or three days. And then I would return to the vomit. And then I would get all upset with myself, and I would hate myself. And then i say, I'm going to quit again, and I would quit again. And then maybe three or four days later, I would return to the vomit. And this went on for several years. Some of you can relate to that. But I never could figure out why do I keep returning to the vomit? Why can't I just make up my mind and quit doing the stupid things I do? And one big thing stood out. I was not confessing my brokenness and my sinfulness. In other words, I refused to admit I had a problem. But it wasn't until I finally said to God, look, dude, I can't do this myself. I need some help. I mean, this was long before I ever opened up an AA book and realized that's one of the first steps of the 12-step plan, right? Is to admit you have a problem and that you have a need for God to step in and to help you. This was long before that. But confession was very important. But here's my problem. Whenever I was a kid and I would, you know, break the family lamp and mom would be about ready to beat me half an inch from the end of my life, I would say, okay, mom, I broke it. It's my fault. I broke it. And I would still get the spanking. I would still get the full wrath of motherhood. Why is that? I just confessed. I did it. Because confession alone isn't good enough. There's something else missing. Confession means, yes, I know I I messed up, but it doesn't illustrate a desire to change your pattern of behavior. Major problem. So let's look at this a little bit further. The Lord replied after their confession, and he said, When these nations around you oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you by my hand? But you have forsaken me, and you served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. I'll tell this on myself. It's not a flattering thing, but it's something that was factual. Years ago, when I was young in ministry, and I was foolish, because I'm not foolish anymore. I passed that threshold, right? But anyway, I would get a little upset because of my jealousy when people would, like, skip church for the whole summer because they were on the boat or because they were at horse shows or whatever it was. And then when a person would come and say to me, I think I'm going to, to stay home, and I'm not going to go to church anymore. This actually happened several times. I think I'm just going to watch my favorite preacher on TV. Because that way I don't have to leave home, and it's not stressful. I can sit here in my pajamas, and as soon as the service is over, I can go and do whatever I want to do. So I'm just going to stay home and watch my favorite preacher on TV. And there were times that I would actually say, okay, well, that's a great plan. Uh, do me a favor. The next time you have a death in your family, make sure you call that preacher to come do the funeral. And the next time your daughter needs to get married, call that preacher to come here and do your wedding. 
All right. And the next time you're, you're in the hospital and you're at the end of your life, see if that preacher will come here and pray over you while you uh, prepare for your eternal home. I was that hateful. I really was because it bothered me so much because of the jealousy. It was rejecting. I felt like they were rejecting me. And I'm like, you know what? That's just pathetic. I've grown up since then. You're more than welcome to watch TV preachers if you want. And, I'm not, and I'll still do your weddings and your funerals or whatever. You know, I'll still be bitter, but I'll still do it, right? <laughs> anyway, I'm just trying to be honest. So God said to them, when you find yourself in despair, why don't you let the bales and the asterisks deliver you? Next time you cry out, cry out to them instead of me, right? I mean, that's kind of... That's basically what I just described. But it's also reality. People just don't think all the way through the process. But they said to him again, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Still, nothing's changed until this next comment Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And he called no longer, oh, he could no longer bear Israel's misery, no longer. That is repentance. The difference between confession and repentance, confession is I did something wrong, I made a mistake, I messed up. Repentance is the matter of changing your mind about something, reversing your course of action, and going the complete and total opposite direction, changing the way from where you were originally. Repentance. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of the things I've learned. This is one of my convictions, even in the last year or so, that a lot of times when I will baptize people, I don't adequately explain to them, this is a baptism of repentance. Repentance. If you de-emphasize the repentance, then basically you're, you're basically saying this is for church membership. Or you're saying this is just for a membership into the body of Christ. But without that commitment that comes along with repentance, you've got a problem. Repentance is what what shows you the true humility of your life. It's what invites God to come in and say, you need my help and I'm here to give it to you. Without repentance, you have perpetual arrogance. Without repentance, you have no commitment to changing your lifestyle. Now, I've always said, like in the book of Acts, Paul, when he gives his testimony, he has three components to his testimony. What I was like before I met Christ. What Christ did to get my attention and bring me to a place of transformation. And third, this is how I'm different now as a result of that transformation. Without that transformation, which is salvation, without that key ingredient, there has been no salvation. If you're the same person you were 20 years ago that you are now, then the Holy Spirit is not part of your life. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to bring you to a place where you're more like Christ. That only comes with confession and dependence upon him and repentance of your sin. Saying, God, I don't want to do this anymore. And then he steps in and he begins the process of cleaning you up. And changing you and overhauling your life. 
And that in the fifth time, the fifth occurrence of the cycle of sin, that is what made all of the difference for Israel. Now, here's a couple verses. I, I call these three subheadings. The first one is, got conviction? Question mark. The second one is, got confession? Question mark. And the third one is, got repentance? Question mark. So under conviction, John 16, 11 says this, When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit's job is to facilitate conviction in your heart. Now, I think I may have told you this before, but it's, it's come back around circle again. I know a guy who, eight years ago, was involved in, a, in an affair with a, with a woman uh, that he worked with. And he told me about it. I was quite aware of it. But because of the confidentiality thing, I couldn't say anything to her. I didn't feel like I could. So I didn't. And for eight or nine years, I kept that secret, knowing that he was going through this rebellious part of his marriage. A week ago, I got a text from his wife saying, my husband has finally left us after catching him cheating for some period of time. She said, did you know that he was cheating? And of course, now at this point, because it's public knowledge, I don't feel like this is anything that I need to keep secret. And I said, yes, I did know. And she said, was it so-and-so? And I said, yes. And she said, that's what I thought. She said, do you remember about when it started? And I said, well, that had been about eight years ago. And she said, well, she told, he told me it just started last year. So anyway, a few minutes later, I get a text from him saying, dude, what did you just do to me? And I said, all I did was answer the question that was asked of me. You're the one who let me down by continuing in a sinful behavior. You told me you were going to quit. He says, well, I don't know what you told her, but you've created a whole um, mess for my life, for lack of better words. And I thought to myself, isn't it sad that he thinks I'm the reason for his disastrous and miserable life right now at this point in his life? Not once did he say, look what I have done to myself, but instead, look what you did to me. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin. And when somebody like him says something like that, I have to think there is absolutely no evidence of Holy Spirit in his life because there's no conviction of anything that he's done. That's sad. You know, the one thing I'll give God credit for, and I haven't always appreciated it, but any time I sin, he won't let me sleep at night. Whenever I sin, he breaks me until I can't hardly stand. When I sin against him, depending on the level of severity, he cripples me until I get to a place where I cry out and say, God, forgive me for what I've done. But he's always faithful to step in and clean me up. He's never left me alone. So my question to you is this. Do you have conviction? 
Does the Holy Spirit convict you when you treat somebody poorly like your spouse? Does the Holy Spirit convict you when you've skipped church for three months? Does the Holy Spirit convict you when you use language at work that you know you shouldn't be using? When you smoke things you shouldn't be smoking or drink things you know you shouldn't be drinking? Does the Holy Spirit convict you when you talk about people and gossip in front of your children? Does the Holy Spirit ever convict you? The second category is, do you have uh, confession? Do you got confession? 2 Corinthians 9.13 says, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. There's an obedience that goes along with your confession I believe that that's repentance. The obedience that follows confession is when you say, you know what, I admit that I have a problem. The obedience is, what am I going to do to deal with that problem? 1 Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame. That's repentance. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Confession doesn't remove the spots or the stains from your soul. Repentance does. Repentance does. My last question is, do you got repentance? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads us to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The question is, do you have godly sorrow in your heart for the things you've done against God? Because when we sin against one another, it's not just a sin against one another. Scriptures make it clear we have also sinned against God. We've given him a black eye and made him look bad. Acts 20, 21, Paul wrote, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Peter 3.1, it says, The Lord is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Notice it doesn't say, I want everyone to come to salvation. I don't want everyone to come to loving each other. He says, I want everyone to come to repentance. If you get the repentance in place and the sins are abolished, now you can now you can love people. Now you can serve in the church. Now you can do various other things. Now you can worship. But when you're harboring sinfulness, it blocks everything. Anyway, I wanted to end with this one quick story. Uh, who was here the very first Sunday that I was here? All right, so maybe a dozen of you. All right. So then that's good because most of you won't know and, some, and the rest of you probably don't remember. I told this story four years ago. Uh, it was a church that I was at. And of course, I say that tongue in cheek. In other words, not a true story. But I was at this church in eastern Kentucky. And it was a little bitty white church. And it had the white siding on the, on the walls. And, and I had just gotten there. And we were in a meeting one night. And we were talking about what are we going to do because the church is dying. People aren't coming. Uh, the building's falling apart. What are we going to do to attract new people? So I said, you know, being the great spiritual leader I was, 
let's pray about this. Let's see what God has to say. And so we prayed, Lord, what should we do? What should we do to make this church change? And while we were all leaving the building, uh, I'll never forget it. <laughs> we were walking out the building, and we heard this voice from heaven, and it said, repaint. And we're like, all right. So we decided to go down to the hardware store and get some paint. We got like 10 gallons, and, and because we were poor, we didn't have a lot of money, we decided to water it down to dilute it so that it would spread farther, right? So we just thinned the paint out a little bit. It was no big deal. So we covered the whole building, and it looked a little bit better. And so we thought, now we're going to do it. Now people are going to start flocking to the building, right? So two months later, we're still declining in membership. So we again pray to God in that meeting, God, please show us what do we need to do in order to change this church so people will come. And so as we're walking out, we're getting ready to hear it. We walked out the door and we heard, repaint. And we're like, are you kidding me? So we go down the hardware store, we get 10 more gallons. And since we've already, you know, thinned a little bit, but covered the walls, we figured we can do this again. We'll just thin the paint again. And we put 10 more gallons on. And so we did that. And the building looked even better than the first time. And two months later, still no results. So we prayed again and we prayed harder this time. Lord, we really need you to intervene because we're about to die here. Could you please help us? And this time on our way out the building, we heard a clearer message from the heavens. We heard a voice that yelled, repaint, repaint, and thin no more. (laughs) Something for you to ponder. Anyway, I'm going to go back here, uh, and I have to tell you, as we get ready to do baptisms, I'm going to have to do it differently. I forgot to bring my towels. Paige forgot to bring my towels. The girls forgot to bring my towels. And so I don't have any towels. So I'm going to stand on the outside of the tub, and everybody else gets to get wet. That's only fair, right? Unless you all want to give me your shirts or something. And No, that's not, that would not be pretty. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> no, thank you. They're probably too small. No, anyway, so anyway, let's pray, and then we'll get ready for baptism, okay? Gracious Father, thank you for loving us. We pray, though, that in the times of our despair that we will quit being so stubborn, And we'll just return to you with repentance in our voices, repentance in our hearts. We pray that you'll forgive us, Lord, any time we come to you and lay our sins at your feet. We pray that you'll be faithful to us, Lord, and forgive them. Please, Lord, we're sorry for the things we've done. We're sorry for the disappointment we've created. We're sorry for the disappointment we put in your heart. But, Lord, we love you and we want to come back to you. Please forgive our sins, Lord. Know our hearts and know that we're genuinely repentive for the things we've done. Come Holy Spirit and heal us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.